So I um, played a game I've never played before. Um, there's What's a that? Blockbuster video game. Oh yeah, movie game kind yeah. of thing. Have you played it before? I'm familiar with it. I haven't played it, but I'm familiar. So I, I was playing this game with, uh, which is great because it's an equalizer kind of game because it's not like you know you have to have an encyclopedic knowledge of movies or whatever to be able to play because you got to name movie titles. So you you've got don't to do. don't do that. You don't you don't want to play any game that requires an encyclopedic knowledge just for fun. No, you really don't. Don't and, don't be Michael Jordan. Invite people over to your house to play pickup basketball. Right. Yeah. That's <laughs> very not fair. But it was. Um, you know, I was at a party and we were playing this game, and uh, so a, a person had to name a quote. And the rule for the name of quote for the movie is that you don't actually have to know any quotes from the movie, but quotes that might be like something from the movie, you can make it up. Oh, okay. And again, to get you to the line. And so um, the person who was up said, "The horses are on fire." That was the line they came up with for a film they'd never seen. <laughs> okay. The horses are on fire. What was the movie? Blazing Saddles. Okay, all right, all right. Fair enough. It was a good time. It's fun. So, um, yeah, that Blazing Saddles, the horses. The horses are on fire. I like a game uh, that's a trivia game that uh, is predicated upon putting the people who would be most prepared on their, their toes. That's right. fun. Yeah, I think so, I like too. Idea. Yeah, I, I prefer that, honestly. Yeah, it's a good time. It's an equalizer, right? Yeah. So, um, hello, welcome again to the Good Trash Honor Cast. We gather around a table. We discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film today's course, and it's not going to be Blazing hello. Saddles. No, indeed. It's going to be Kevin Smith's Dogma. That's right. We continue exiting Shocktober 8, The Ocho, with yet another film about uh, spirituality and human existence. we got a twofer for you. And, you know, the it's apocalypse. That, it's that real uh, leaning into the early half of November as uh, All Saints Day, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, like yeah. I don't know. So we're paying rent like everyone else, and this is the apocalypse. Um, and... Yeah, an Imagine Dragons reference. Uh, oh, is that what that was? Yeah, from Radioactive? I don't know, man. Oh, man, brother. Uh, I like that one song from that one band. I, I think everybody liked that one song from that one band, yeah, which is why it's in 800 trailers. <laughs> <laughs> totally true. Um, I'm still Dustin. Still Dalton. Still Arthur. And uh, we're here doing this thing. Um, we don't believe, but we have a pretty good idea. Yeah. Um, now, to warn you, in case you're tuning in for the first time, this the Good Trash genre cast is an analysis show, not a review show. And so we're going to spoil the end of the world. I mean, dogma. Uh, a film that, if you haven't seen before, might cause you some trouble seeing. Yes. Uh, it is, as we'll probably get into in the show, a hard movie to watch. Thoroughly unavailable is what we might describe it as. And so uh, we'll be talking about it, and we'll be spoiling that. But we'll try to avoid those spoilers for the first part of the show with a synopsis, a thumbs-up, thumbs-down review, which will be generally spoiler-free. And then we'll move on into uh, expanding our syllabus, which might be more spoilerful, slightly. And then we get right on down to business, and we don't care about spoilers anymore at that point. Or we might stop caring earlier. But yeah, you never It can be argued we never care about them. It, it, well, yes, and that's oftentimes the case. So, uh, without any further ado, though, let's go ahead and hear that synopsis from the voice of the cinema, if you don't mind. Or just Arthur, you're not the voice of the cinema, you're just Arthur right now. I'm the voice of God. The Metatron. Uh, as we, written by IMDb. We will cease to exist if we hear the voice of God. That's true. Mm-hmm. It's a real, uh, a real Cronenberg uh, experience, if you, if you hear it. That's, that's the, 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 yes, exactly right. <laughs> An abortion clinic worker with a special heritage is called upon to save the existence of humanity from being negated by two renegade angels trying to exploit a loophole and re-enter heaven. 
That is the logline of this film. Yeah, yeah. It's a thing. W.C. Fields, I'm looking for a loophole, and uh, apparently so are the angels because they've been cast out, but they're not part of the Hell Rebellion in the mythos here. They're just doing a little mini-rebellion of their own. And so they're trying to figure their way out through all of that stuff. So there you go. That's what happens in the movie Dalton. Did you like? Do you like Dogma? I had not seen this in a very, very long time. Uh, this got a lot of uh, rotation on Comedy Central back in the early aughts. Uh, so I've seen this movie at bits and pieces uh, hundreds of times. Uh, this is maybe only the second time that I've ever sat down and watched it uh, in its completion. Yeah, I really like this movie. I, I, I would make the case that it's maybe the, the peak uh, of Kevin Smith's career. I think it exists uh, in this really interesting spot. Uh, you know, Kevin Smith kind of gets his career started right along Soderbergh and Tarantino in this indie boom of the early 90s. And his career just kind of follows an inter- interesting trajectory throughout the 90s, right? He's got Clerks coming out of Sundance, which is big, and then has Mallrats, which is a big studio movie that doesn't do very well, and then has Chasing Amy, which is really critically regarded, and that all leads to Dogma. And we'll talk about more uh, about Kevin Smith's career later in the episode, I think. But uh, I think sitting here as his fourth film, it certainly feels the most ambitious, uh, even outside of, you know, something like Cop Out or Zack and Mary Make a mm-hmm. Porno, which are, you know, pretty big studio movies. But you you feel Kevin Smith's fingerprints on those a lot less, right? The The further he gets into his career the more he starts trying to do studio films that are kind of disconnected from his his personal life i think the less interesting his filmography gets but you know this film sits at a point where he is well established pretty successful and has got the clout and the budget uh to do a film that really speaks to his personal issues right this is a guy that grew up catholic and wants to make a movie that is a, a a Catholic mythology satire, and I think that's a a really fun jumping off point for the film. We are sitting down to record literally right after watching the film together, uh, because uh, as Arthur alluded to at the end of last week's episode, this is a hard movie to find. And Arthur's copy that is a special DVD edition now retails for like ninety bucks used online uh, because of various rights issues and whatnot. Uh, so, so sitting down to watch it was really fun because it's, it's a hard movie to get to. And I, I just kept being delighted by it. Uh, th- there's moments, uh, watching it that you go, Ooh boy, it is 1999 in this movie right now. Uh, the gay jokes. The gay jokes. The vaguely racist. The vaguely yeah. rapey, uh, mm-hmm. jokes that I think at the time, it, I don't think anybody understood just how close, or at the very least, uh, our writer director didn't understand how, how close to very gross some of those jokes were. But again, even those moments, which are, I would say, fewer and far farther between than you might expect from a movie of this era, uh, I, I think most of those have, a, at the very least, something resembling a humanity in the structure of the dialogue. Uh, there, there's something resembling a character reveal in some of those grosser jokes that uh, I, I palette them a little bit easier. I'm not trying to give the movie a pass or anything. I think problematizing it's a, a worthwhile endeavor. But uh, those jokes aside, I laugh a lot. I get uh, misty uh, more often than I, I expected. Uh, I, I think it's a, an overall really successful film, and I, I think that its success is predicated upon it coming from an, an emotionally earnest and honest place. And, I, I you know, uh, at the end of the day, whatever film we're talking about on the show, regardless of its uh, credentials, whether they be dubious at best uh, or something worth honoring, we always try to find the emotional truth in the films we're talking about. And I think for a a movie with a shit demon, 
this is a pretty emotionally honest film about wrestling with your faith, uh, about not your not faith in, in a specific way, right? This is a, a film about Catholicism, sure, but I think it can be faith in a much more generalized way, which I think the, is a big part of what this film's getting at. Uh, I got off on a tangent, though. Uh, we were speaking as we were watching this, how much more interesting this film might be coming out even three, four, five years after 1999 uh, if this film comes out in the wake of uh, the exposure that the Boston – was it the Boston Globe? Yeah, I believe so. I don't want to miscredit that. Yeah, the the spotlight team for the Boston Globe, you can go watch the movie. They, there's a movie about it. Uh, much, if there's much, not a movie about it, it's not what worth it, knowing. Humans don't care, yeah. It never happened. Uh, but there, well, there was a movie about it, so it did happen. Uh, but it would be interesting to to watch the satire about organized religion in the in the wake of, of that scandal. Uh, it would be a harder movie to make, that's for damn sure. Yeah. But uh, that aside, you know, you can't control when you write and direct your movie. Life just kind of happens. Uh, so putting that out of our minds, because uh, ifs and nuts, candies, butts, whatever. Uh, I think it's a more interesting movie without if we got to have that. But moving on, I think there's just a lot here. And I think uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun trying to break this open. But uh, that said, I really, really enjoyed it. In fact, more than I expected to. All righty. Very good. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton, sir. What do you think, Arthur? Do you like a Dogma? I get a good kick out of it. I, I really do. This is probably the first time I've seen it since high school. Uh, I mean, I went on a big Kevin Smith kick in high school. One of my friends loved him, and, and she loaned me all of his movies, and I watched them. And, um, you know, I, I got a kick out of it. And I get a kick out of it now, especially, you know, growing up in church. And so uh, those those connections are, are interesting for me. And, you know, I'm not as practiced as some people at this table. Uh, Dude, we were just talking about but, Dustin. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, uh I, I don't know I do. what you're talking about. <laughs> um, I, I think we've, we talked about this a bit while we were watching the movie. Uh, Smith's not a visual director. I, no. He doesn't have that flair. He doesn't have that flourish of a lot of, you know, a Nolan or a Tarantino even. Um, and so as far as, you know, putting the pieces together, it's, it's pretty good. I, I, you know, He's an some, actor's director, I yeah, think. Yeah, there was some rough you, – you had walked out of the room, and, and there was a, a – a, cut from one scene to the next it was a weird trend it was like a really bad, weird yeah. jump cut there's a handful of weird transitions yeah. in this movie yeah uh, and not just like the swipes and the spirals but i mean it was just like it felt like a scene was missing like it just jumped and it was weird um and so those kind of elements i i think is a little amateur still it feels like especially of an uh, and as ambitious as this project is uh but where i do think smith excels is in his writing i, I think going back to clerks i mean the dialogue the the scripting itself the the things he's saying he writes uh, people the way they wish they talked yeah, yeah I, I think he's really good at writing I, I do i think he's a great writer uh in that regard and so i think it's got a lot of great jokes i think it's got a lot of heart i think all of his films have a lot of heart you know this one chasing amy even clerks has a lot of heart um and so uh, emotionally i think it resonates very well uh, and he's assembled a great cast. I mean, you've got uh, Linda Fortino, you've got Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, uh, Alan Rickman, who just steals the show. He's so good. Um, yeah, he is. Dustin made a, a comment while we were watching it about uh, uh, heartwarming Alan Rickman, I think is what Dustin yeah. said, being a, a weird uh, volume to get used to. Yeah, and, and then we've got the, the View Askew cameos, you know, Brian Halloran and uh, Walt Flanagan and uh, Randall, I can't think of his name. Um, you know, we've got those guys showing up. We've got George Carlin in a bit piece. We've got Janine Garofalo in a bit piece. So, I mean, just a stellar who's who cast of 1999. Yeah. Uh, super impressive that he got all these guys together for this movie. Uh, and it was his most commercially successful movie at the time, if I'm not mistaken. And it probably may still be. I don't know. I, I mean, think that's right. Yeah. Um, 
And so I, I like quite a bit about it. I, I do think it is maybe a little too ambitious. It does, you know, it comes in about two hours and eight minutes and it feels a little bit like that. I think there's a lot happening. Dustin, though, there's a lot of exposition taking place and it's like, it never okay. really stops. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think it could have been trimmed down some, maybe cutting some characters or some subplot or something. I mean, you probably could cut the whole thing with, uh, Asriel and, and, and be perfectly fine. Uh, but we got Jason Lee in there and, you know, Jason Lee is, part and parcel of the view of skewer since mall rats, you know? Yeah. And so I think having them there is probably more of a personal uh, thing than rather a story thing. Um, so it, it is messy. It, it does have some flaws, but I think the pure heart of it, the pure emotion of it uh, allows it to succeed more than it really has any right to. And so uh, I was wondering how it would hold up after like what? Gosh, 15 years or something years. like that. 15 yeah. years for you, 20 years from yeah. its, its initial release, yeah. Yeah, I watched it probably in, it must have been around 2003 when I first saw it. Um, so it's been about 16 years, and I, and it held up. It, it really did. I, I laughed a lot. Um, Jason Muse is good at doing one thing very well. <laughs> yeah, he's um, so good at it. And there's a bit of trivia that um, when they got Rickman on, Smith was like, hey, I'm going to need you to step up your game, Muse, uh, because we got Rickman. And so Jason Mewes, I think, went out and memorized the entire script or something to that extent just to be like, try to prove a point to Rickman. That's that's adorable. <laughs> you know? And it's fun to see uh, these two Jersey boys, uh, Smith and, and Muse, playing next to Rock and Hayek and Affleck and Damon and, and Rickman. And, and there's something kind of sweet about that. I mean, this is a guy, you know, 10000 bucks made clerks. And, and since that point, he was just living his dream. I, I mean, there's that element of kind of personal gratification and fan service to himself that you see in his movies, especially Jay and Silent Bob Strike uh, Strike Back. Um, and it kind of feels like that here. You've got a couple of just good old boys playing with Hollywood elite. Uh, and I think there's something sweet about it in, in a way that, like, I, I know Dustin is not comedy in the past where you have, like, uh, he, this came up on A Fish Called Wanda where you have John Cleese hooking up with Jamie Lee Curtis, right? There's, like, a... A bit like, of like, this is like indulgency. Sort of like, yeah, yeah like, that, that like came fantasy up. fulfillment kind yeah. of stuff. And I yeah. think that is definitely here, but it doesn't feel as... I mean, if that's if Silent gross. Bob had hooked up with... Anybody, Lynn, really. Lynn, yeah, yeah. or Salma Hayek, maybe. Uh, but there's something very sweet about it. And, and Kevin Smith comes out as just a very sweet boy anyway. And, and I think that's kind of personalized here. And it feels like a very personal film uh, for him in a lot of ways. And so... Overall, yeah, I enjoy it. I, I get a kick out of it. Definitely would watch it again, especially. And it's hard to find, so, you know. Yeah. It's worth seeing. I think you make a good point, Arthur, that uh, his, his, I think, Dogma especially, but really all the films, like, do a good job of making fun of Jay and Silent Bob as often yeah. as it appreciates them. And I, I think that's how it allows it to have that sweetness. You make a good point there. Yeah. D Dustin, this was uh, the first time all the way through for you, right? Right. I've only seen bits and pieces. Mostly the end is all I've ever seen okay. of the film. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it passes the six laugh test. It is that funny. And uh, so I... You're, I, you're, you're oft-referenced six laugh test. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, I mean, it does that. So I laugh more than six times. So, therefore, it's a successful comedy as far as I'm concerned. And that sounds like a low bar. To the listener at home, I'm sure six laughs. Wow, uh, Dustin doesn't laugh a lot, and he's a very sad clown. He doesn't. Uh, yep. He doesn't laugh. Yeah, I, cracks I, a lot of smiles, not a lot of chortles. And the, so uh, it's it's a lot harder to attain than you'd expect. Uh, yeah, with a comedy, it's film. a real test. It, it really is a genuine test. I think that maybe speaks to your your interest in film not being uh, comedy. Honestly. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I, I do like my sad movies. I mean, there is that, but I, I do like the movie. I think it's a lot of fun. I, as you guys have both said, it's very earnest. It has a lot of heart, a lot of sincerity. I do feel as though, and I was making this critique a little bit off air, as though it is very much 
the send up of the church without doing any homework at all. Like there, I really do feel like there could have been a little bit of work with R and D, and we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, later. But there, there are bits and pieces that are used for traction and for jokes. For instance, and I'm just gonna say it now. Yeah, let's get this out of the way because you've been you've got to be in your bonnet about Chris this. Chris Rock's character is Rufus, the sort of missing apostle. Now, and and the whole thing is that he's left out of the Bible. The fact is, there is a character in the Bible called Rufus who is historically depicted as black. I mean, so all of these things are sort of working together. This character exists, uh, not to the extent of being played up in the way that Chris Rock's sort of mythos is being, you know, and I'm, I'm fine with playing with the mythos. But uh, if you're going to pick a character that doesn't exist, pick a character that doesn't exist. Make up a name that's not already in the Bible. Exactly. That's I mean, it's, it's like just, just. I mean. Uh, I, I think it's Ellen a weird. Ellen I think so, you're yeah, literally you nailed one of, it. You're one of twelve yeah. people who probably picked up on that watching right. dogma. But probably it, so. Okay, I'll, I'll grant you this. And so, it, it, weirdly, it's a send up, but it's a send up of the church for people who went a lot but didn't pay attention, and that's okay. But I want the send up for the people who went a lot and did pay attention. I don't think that movie gets a, a wide release. I think well, that movie's probably called true. First Reformed. Well, yeah, and yeah. which is a, which is one of the greatest films of the last decade so there's that so but you can do it as a comedy as well and you can do it in writing as well but nonetheless that being said i'm i'm, I'm i'll set that all aside all of that aside um it does have heart it does ask some great questions it does sort of i think kevin smith is uh lacking a little confidence because he's doing this comedy and he does really march himself into some really kind of deep and yeah. uh, some really, I mean, true territory about questions of wrestling with faith, the problem of evil, the questions of suffering that we all kind of go in, and endure. And he can't live with them that long. He can't sort of just let those moments breathe. And he soon breaks back in with comedy bits or set piece bits and, you know, Silent Bob throwing an angel out of a train. No which ticket. Is, no ticket. Uh, which is a great. Indiana Jones reference, but also, you, well, we could have sat with that for a second and still remained in the realm of comedy. Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's not really a flaw so much as it just seems like Kevin Smith's, you know, lost his own stamina, his own will in that moment. Well, we'll, but, we'll talk about that being a through line in his career, I think, at some point. Well, probably so. I Yeah, I don't know. I don't know his career well enough to say, but we'll see. Well, so, We'll we'll get there. I'll be curious to hear. Um, but overall, though, it's a fun movie. It's good. I mean, there are a lot of things to like about it. But there's also a question of, okay, if you're going to take on the dogmas of the church, fine, let's do that. If you're going to construct a crazy postmodern mythos, fine, let's do that. If you're going to construct a comedy around some of the major theological questions that are sort of ridiculous, like, well, where's God when this thing happens? Great. But also, pick a lane, my friend. And so, as you were saying earlier, Arthur, it's a bit busy. It's a bit of a mess. And I think having picked a lane with regarding to themes, that might have been able to sort of streamline the runtime a little bit and probably made a much more enjoyable experience for me overall. You can almost, like, picture Kevin Smith, like, hunched over a laptop or, I don't know, whatever he was writing on in 97 or whenever he was working on this. But you can almost picture him, like, working on this and then, like, picturing his grandparents watching the movie at times yeah that's what when as soon as you talked about the the moments he backs away it does feel like a, a writer who is doing their best to make a hollywood movie that doesn't ruffle anybody's feathers too hard yeah a little bit and except for the platypus except for the platypus and platypi enthusiasts stupid little creatures 
But uh, fair points made, Dustin. Fair points. So, well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our biases concerning the film. Let's expand the syllabus and talk about a class that we might teach about this film or films around this film and other readings and writings uh, that we might find to use that. So, what class are you teaching and what are you going to use as augmentation for dogma, Dalton? Well, uh, again, we are coming uh, right out of watching this. So, uh, I thought a little bit about what the, the syllabus would be this week, having not watched the film. Uh, but yesterday in sitting down to watch, I kind of decided, all right, it's been a while since we did a, a career study uh, as a theoretical class on this show. So let's go ahead and do a Kevin Smith career study, because I do think Dogma is probably his, if not best film, uh, definitely his most ambitious by a lot. Uh, so I, I think that's going to be interesting. Now, to Dustin's point, I am also not super well-versed in Kevin Smith's career, or at the very least, not the last 10 years or so of his career. Um, that being his podcast work and then his his uh, films Red State, Tusk, and, uh, oh God, what's the Yoga one? Hosers. Yoga Hosers, right. And then he's working on this uh, Jay and Silent Bob reboot thing that was going to be Clerks 3, and then he had Heart Attack. And, uh, I, I, you know, I stay up to date on what the guy's doing, but I haven't really watched it. But I think the interesting thing about his career is watching this really accomplished writer get a pretty accomplished director's career and never really find... And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to armchair analyze the guy. I don't know him. But there is, a, if not a, a lack of ambition, maybe a lack of confidence throughout his directing. And I think it is films like Cop Out being an action comedy where that, that sort of stuff starts to shine through the most. But, I, again, I, I think there's a lot of interesting ground to be worked here, especially if we look at the 90s uh, and, and the rise of indie cinema and the... Uh, well, for lack of a better way to put it right now, the colonization of independent cinema by Hollywood uh, and the ways in which the outgrowth of 70s new Hollywood's fascination uh, with uh, white guys who went to film school and the ways in which that kind of matriculated into those same cats who came up in the 70s having the power to greenlight projects in the 90s. They mostly greenlight projects from white guys who grew up watching their movies. And it is this sort of self-perpetuating cycle we get from any canonization of art, right? Uh, this is not a, a phenomenon th that is, uh, you know, exclusive to film. This is a phenomenon that exists throughout the, the course of, like, trying to catalog art throughout human history. It's a problem we keep butting up against because of the natures of human power structures. Uh, so I, I think that in and of itself is interesting, right? Because we, we, we complain a lot as film goers, film lovers, people who talk about cinema. I'm not just talking about the three of us. I'm kind of talking about the, the film going and film commentating public at large. We, we talk a lot about, especially in the last five years or so, about this problem uh, of a lack of representation within Hollywood. I think Kevin Smith's career represents something interesting in that because there's definitely uh, people of a schmuckier quality that have gotten more chances than Kevin Smith. I'm looking at you, Peter Berg. Uh, that's, yeah, I don't give a shit who I take a shot at. The point is there's plenty of schmucks out there who keep getting movies. Uh, and most of those schmucks are white dudes. And looking at Kevin Smith's career, I think is super interesting because all the movies are pretty good. At least the first eight or however many of the Viewisk Universe ones, I think, are pretty damn good, even when the directing falters. So, yeah, I think we're just, we're just going to go through those Viewisk Universe movies, probably in, like, the first uh, half of this class, knock that out, uh, and then look at the back half of that career and how 
his career kind of sits at this weird nexus of Hollywood and filmmaking and uh, how does financing work? How does a filmography work? How does auteur theory work? Uh, because again, Kevin Smith comes up in this independent cinema boom of the 90s and his career falls apart in, oh gee, around 2007, 8, 9. What was going on during those years? Oh, that's right. Filmmaking changed. Everything became about franchises and temples. Uh, the, the work that had been started by Jaws was completed by uh, by the, the Marvel company uh, and by Disney after that. So again, I think it's an interesting place, and we get to watch a, a filmography change, right? Uh, Clerks and Mallrats are very goofy, very silly films. One's much bigger and sillier than the other. But then you get Chasing Amy and Dogma, which are very personal films. I think Chasing Amy, uh, to Dustin's point about Dogma being kind of afraid to let moments sit, I think Chasing Amy sits with moments a lot more. And again, uh, another talking about problematizing films from the 90s. I think there's a lot in Chasing Amy that we have to talk about, but we, I think we also have to talk about the ways in which its representation are pretty groundbreaking in the mid-90s. Uh, the seriousness uh, with which it treats uh, just the existence of gay people uh, in modern society is kind of unprecedented uh, in studio films in the 90s. Again, indie filmmaking has uh, been uh, heads and shoulders ahead of everything from Hollywood, uh, queer representation not being the least of those things. But again, Chasing Amy, when it came out, uh, is kind of a big deal. And the, the look, the fact that it's about a gay woman falling in love with Ben Affleck is something that we're going to talk about in this class. But I, I think yeah. it's it's an interesting film to discuss. And again, a, a film that comes from a personal place. We don't. But need... isn't that like a lazy fantasy? We're not going to get into it today. Okay, okay. It's not the episode to get okay. into it. I. It's too long of a conversation. All right, fair uh, enough. And one that exists. If it will probably break up the class by watching uh, that halfway point. Some of these evenings with Kevin Smith that he did, in which he usually answers about two questions in the course of ninety minutes. Uh, he is like yours truly, something of a rambler when it comes to talking. Sorry about that. Uh, but I, I think there's some good answers about at least where he was coming from in making Chasing Amy. He speaks to some of those criticisms uh, quite eloquently and, again, personally, you know, talking about why he wrote that film and where it came from. But then we exit Dogma and we get to this career that goes, oh, shit, what do we do now? I got to make my big religion movie. And he goes and makes Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back and he goes and makes Clerks 2. And then we follow into Zack and Mirror make a porno. Uh, and cop out and kind of watch his big mainstream career come to an end. Uh, it's an interesting uh, filmography, to be sure. Uh, I think it is a filmography that uh, allows us to play with auteur theory in some interesting ways because he is kind of of a piece. All of his films do fit within a certain mode and style and, and particular considerations, usually around sex and human interaction and religion. Uh, and then we get to talk about studio stuff. We get to talk about the big... Uh, disgusting shit that happens in a studio filmmaking system because of how much of his career is tied to the existence of Miramax and the Weinstein Company. So again, I think a very interesting career and somebody, uh, unlike you know Tarantino, who comes up under similar circumstances, works with the same cats as Kevin Smith, uh, and has a much more critically lauded career. That's fuck that. That's not interesting. Oh, we, we this is somebody we've agreed as an artist. Get that out of here. Let's talk about Kevin Smith. Somebody we can agree upon uh, about their merits as an artist. I think it'll be an interesting conversation. I like it. I like it very much. I would be interested in that class. So, hey, um, Arthur, if you're doing a class like this, how would you do it, and what would you add to it? I'd, I'd probably maybe just delve with Catholicism in film uh, yeah. a bit. Yeah, rich and rich territory. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of options to choose from. Uh, I, I would have a text, uh, Roman Catholicism and Fantastic Film 
essays on belief, spectacle, ritual, and imagery. Um, trying to find edited by uh, Regina Hansen, um, just to kind of have some reading. Is it an work. essay collection? Yeah. Okay. Uh, just I assume one of those small collections you usually find um, of, of different uh, reflections on film and applying you know theory to those, and uh, just to have some reading material to go along with some of these films. Uh, and then from there, I would go into I'd probably go back to Alfred Hitchcock when you talk about Catholic directors. I think Hitchcock's yeah. uh, biggie on the eye chart, and uh, I confess is one I'm not super familiar with, but I know it's one of his more blatantly catholic films dealing with a priest and innocent oh man. i confess and, yeah yeah uh, and, and you know it's in the title there uh but i i think that's one uh to go with he was always fascinated by the uh the the tribulations of the wrongfully accused innocent man and then there's the thread that kind of runs through his career and i think i confess is kind of a pinnacle of those elements coming together so i'd go there first and then i would move into uh michael madonna's in bruges oh um, nice great film the, dealings with guilt and actions and our works and those repercussions of those works and dealing you really just do all of mcdonald's filmography yeah, yeah. You, you really could uh but just living in this purgatory specifically which is very catholic i believe um and i think that's just a fascinating idea and it's just a lot of fun as a movie as well as a dark comedy and it works uh super great in that regard as well um and from there i'd move into something a little heavier or something a little more serious i'd go into doubt mm. um which does kind of start to address some of those post uh, yeah. 2000 uh, issues of the church. Well, and I think very importantly contextualizes those as things that have plagued the church since its inception. Yeah. Right. I mean, you can go back to the middle ages, the, the word sodomy uh, as being tied to, uh, you know, butt sex uh, for, a, let's put it in a silly way uh, because it's not silly. Uh, but that, that, that word got invented in the, uh, with that uh, association got invented in the middle ages by a, a monk who is writing to the church in Rome going, y'all, you got to get somebody up here in Wales and help us figure this out. I think mm -hmm. it was in Wales. It's not important. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, doubt set, sets that in the 50s, right? 60s? Yeah, it's a, con 60s, it's a period think, yeah. piece nonetheless. Um, yeah. But it's, you know, having that common modern commentary on, on the Catholic Church, and I think it's a very interesting place to go and raises those questions that Smith wasn't able to go into in 99. Um, and then from there, I would go into another controversial film uh, from the 70s, and that is The Exorcist. Mm, uh, nice. Deal straight with the horror genre, but also, uh, you know, a film that's very controversial and, you know, evil spirits and Christians don't mix. Um, uh, but bring Billy Graham the... said the celluloid itself was possessed by the devil. Did he really? Yeah, he did. What a dumb thing for somebody to say. Uh, but at its heart, it's... A, big metaphor about the crisis of faith and i yeah, think this is. is one that is easy to wrestle with and talk about and think about and look at and uh especially with that ending and i you know it's one i just caught up with last year and it, it you know it's a powerhouse still to this day and, and i you know it holds up very well uh and then from there i'd come full circle on on his career and i'd come back to red state his other kind of religious movie yeah. and you know his take on the westboro group and that kind of allegory that's going on there and how he's playing with that and uh and what that looks like because in that back half of his career it's probably his strongest film and it may be in the top three of his works overall i mean it's a really strong film i think especially at least from the first time i watched it it's been a while since i've seen it but i remember it being very impactful and very good that that's a big regret for me not getting time to catch up with red state before we recorded yeah, yeah. I, I know you've gone to bat for that uh and you're not the only one i've heard i think dustin you've seen it you'd like i've it, seen right? it yeah i like it a lot i think brigham uh one of our our, our good friend brigham one of our first listeners uh also has gone to bat for that film to 
to me several times. There's a lot of people who uh, who like that. It's and, worth seeing, especially when the slate that comes after it is yeah. Yoga Hosers and Tusk. I, I think uh, Red State's a very you know serious, earnest kind of horror film dealing with this this group and that ideology. And I think it's a good way to circle back and bring the course full circle if we're we're focusing or talking about dogma. Very good, very good. Um, I am going to take on the religious satire in this course, uh, specifically just the send-up of the Bible and or uh, various institutional traditions of the church. I'm glad somebody got to this, because I was toying with something adjacent to this. So, uh, first of all, there used to be, and I don't know if it's still being published or not, a uh, so a mad magazine for seminarians called The Door. Mm-hmm. As in the Wittenberg door upon which Martin Luther posted his 95 thesis, right, to start the process. Gotcha, y'all a bunch of nerds. Well, yeah, we are. Uh, uh, but the door is hilarious. And I'm it, sure it was. It was, yeah, all that kind of sort of send up stuff. So I would use a few issues of that. I don't, I didn't look up what, which ones I would this use. This is all the cool seminarians who play frisbee and hacky sack, right? So, so, yeah, I guess. Or, you know. <laughs> You know, it's, it's Guinness in the afternoon and lattes in the evening. Yeah, these Got are the it. seminarians who had sex before they went to college. Gotcha. So yeah, uh, yeah, they're real cool and they're funny, funny folks. Uh, nonetheless, I'm I'm being mean. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's fine. No, uh, but, but I, I, it's an interesting world to think about, though, right? Because I I imagine that the world of seminarian satire is not something that all seminarians get into. I mean, it's 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 a, it's a very very specific brand of comedy, but I think that dogma taps into some of that same kind of idea. Um then I would also move into Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah, baby. Because it's a, I mean, that's a, the high holy hand grenade yeah. bits, you know, and it blow us to tiny bits in yeah. thy mercy. Um all of that sort of discussion of the language of the Old Testament. Well, in the medieval church. Right, and this sort of dipolar, bipolar version of God that is sometimes constructed. It's even referred to in the film in question, in mm-hmm. Dogma, as well. And so those kind of send-ups are also very, very fun. And then we'd finally move into Mark Twain. Um, Letters from Earth okay. specifically. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, and Twain, uh, there's some arguments made that Twain was actually a Christian who was in critique of the church, and then he's oftentimes used as a bastion of quotes for your, you know, your Richard Dawkins types um, that sort of love to use Twain quotes uh, for his particular send-ups of the church. But I think his letters from Earth, which are written from the perspective of Lucifer the devil, Tight. talking about just how ridiculous all these humans are and their ideas of heaven, specifically in one letter when he writes to the angel uh, Michael, if memory serves. I'm, it's Michael or Gabriel almost always. But he writes to him says, I don't know why these humans want to go to heaven. In heaven, there's no sex. In heaven, they're singing all the time. No one likes singing that much, and everyone's got a harp. Do you know how loud that could be? That's ridiculous. And this whole every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, do you mean they're going to stand by black people and sing? No, they're not. They don't want this at all. They just think they do. Mark Twain, very clever. Mark Twain is very clever and very, very fun. A man who knew his time. And to accompany that was with the children's film that's not a children's film, The Claymation, The Adventures of Mark Twain, in which a uh, Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, and Becky Thatcher find themselves on a magic dirigible piloted by none only than Mark Twain, the joyful Twain, and also his dark stranger self. What the hell is, is this? It is not a kid's show Where did at this all. come from? From the 80s. 
And uh, the, I think the same folks that put together the California Raisins were behind this. I don't know this for sure. <laughs> but this, it's, yeah, stylistically, is this, is this it's like a, very similar. A bootleg VHS that got passed around animation the, schools I mean, no, in the 80s? TV. It was a TV it was? film. Yeah, it was, it was a big thing. I mean, okay. You can find a full version on the YouTube even now. Yeah, okay. Dustin had mentioned a couple weeks ago us doing this sometime on the show. Yeah, we can't oh, okay. do it now because we just did Dogma. It's kind of the we'll same thing. Space it out where it, where and, can one even find this these days? Just on the internet? Or? YouTube. You can find it on YouTube right now for free, the whole thing. Oh, shit. But this was aired on like television? Yeah, on TV. I watched it. I watched it when it aired, what and the... it scared the devil out of me because it was, it's terrifying. Because Lucifer makes an appointment, uh, makes an appearance, and oh my goodness! Yeah, they make a scary devil. Um, the, yeah, I mean cool. it, this, this show is not Tim Curry scary. Uh, worse. Oh, tight. no, man! I, I will show you things later. Please do. Uh, it's it's terrifying. I'm do it. So, uh, and again, questions of if God's so good, then what kind of stuff? And those sort of fundamental questions that fundamentalism passes over that Twain was looking at, go and said, "This is ridiculous." Which I think is the same kind of approach that there is a certain Roman Catholic version of fundamentalism that Kevin Smith's taking on, mm. and so, and which is, I think, also the same kind of fundamentalism that Monty Python. And the Holy Grail takes on. And so asking those kind of questions, we'll probably watch a little bit of the meaning of life and how every sperm is sacred. And because uh, that is a great little bit so there. Um, so those kinds of send ups. And to what extent are these critiques valid? To what extent are they honest? To what extent are they fair? And to what extent does the church in any way try to remediate those questions? I think that would be a fun little theological voyage into religious satire. So I guess it would be a module of my film and theology at this point if I were to rewrite it. This is how I can get rid of Woody Allen, so I'm all for it. Oh, you point. can just swap out Woody Allen for Kevin Cause, Smith. Yeah, yeah, because I think I want it uh, because I would like a lot less Woody Allen. Like I, none. Yeah, that would be ideal. Like 0% Woody Allen in the class now. I... Look, I I thought it. I haven't liked Woody Allen since before it was cool to like Woody Allen. I I'm not trying to like get on a soapbox or anything, but yeah, who gives a shit? Any Hall's fine. Any Hall's fine. a very good movie. It's fine. Okay, Manhattan. Any Hall's very good. Manhattan's fine. Manhattan's fun. Manhattan's pretty and it's also fine. gross. It's gross as hell. Yes, I, I can't agree entirely. With this fucking movie. Yeah, I still think about the time we had it. Did we talk about that for the show proper, or was that when we were that, trying that to was do a, the, yeah, the, the, the do cinema? The cinema. Do cinema. Yeah, I couldn't remember. Garbage. I'm still mad at that movie. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Well, there you go. We've just expanded your syllabus, and it just got much longer. I think now is the time we get down to business. It's business. It's business time. what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Well, this is mostly for us. Yeah, we're getting down to business. This is the considerations we're going to have to think about when we uh, try to teach class on dogma. So let's let's get into it, huh? Yeah. So I guess the first thing that comes to mind, and I think this is uh, initially the disclaimer section of what we need to do with this. And it's funny that the movie opens up with a disclaimer a because it's kind of offensive in terms of, you know, poking fun at religion. But I do think anytime when you're doing a Woody Allen film, because sometimes you might have to in a film stays course, sure. or a D.W. Griffith film, or an Alfred Hitchcock film, or a Roman Polanski film, that there are a certain number of disclaimers. And Kevin Smith is a nice boy who so far, and we would hope that the clock continues to run out for this, is above reproach. 
Well, he did say that gross thing about uh, his oh, wife's genitals on Twitter. Oh, well, I mean, that's just... He was trying to be sweet. I get it. He's he, being sweet. He's in, horny for his wife. In it's, a very 12-year-old kind yes. of way. And I think that's... If you could say anything about Kevin Smith, it's that he's been a 12-year-old for his entire career. Yes. But there's an earnestness to that that I think is... Again, I, I think the ways in which he's talked and written about his near-death experience, which I've, I've read a little of, are really mature and nuanced and like continues to reveal an interesting guy within that person and yet yeah kevin muse thinking about men when he masturbates jason muse yeah. jason muse sorry uh, being a point of shame and yet the black guys drinking 40s and yeah the that's bar. that's a bad joke and, you know like there in this sort of again this sort of casual homophobia and the casual racism despite a move you know, to put Chris Rock's character in the film as the sort of uns- unsung black apostle. There's a little bit of just 90s ick in this film. And I, I guess that's the first thing I would open up with in terms of analysis is how do we negotiate something like – because it's easy to sort of just disavow Polanski. Like, okay, separate the art from the artist, right? That's that's the typical move that we make. In this particular case, it is the art that is the problem. And the artist, upon reflection, would – recuse himself would not recuse himself would rather apologize and say distance himself from those moves well i think what you've just touched on dustin is like kind of the fundamental question that i I think we all uh, have always asked ourselves uh, when we talk about this art versus artist distinction i think as this conversation has been had a lot in all film spaces and art spaces but on this show in the last couple of years i think you've, you've kind of scratched at something which is the art can't be separated from the artist's you fundamentally cannot at a certain point. You have to talk about, well, this is a person that did X, Y, or Z shitty thing, and X, Y, or Z shitty message exists in this film. You kind of have to analyze those things. I mean, we talked about this when we talked about Chinatown earlier this year, right? You have to analyze those moments in which a film's uh, uh, failings butt up against the legacy of of the the primary artist of a text, right? And then, you know, we get into fucking our tour theory with this conversation now but i i think you bring up a good point i think talking about chasing amy here might be a, a good place I, this is me knowing that i might be the the foremost kevin smith scholar right now but also i think so my knowledge is failing me i want to say it's his sister uh is gay uh and her experiences throughout the 80s and 90s of just being a gay person in america was a big inspiration for chasing amy and he trying to figure out how to convince a studio to let him make a a queer film uh and having that very problematic issue of it being about uh her relationship to ben affleck which i think again is a nuanced conversation about human sexuality right but considering the lack of uh lesbian representation on film in the mid 90s and considering this mid 90s and we did not understand it as a spectrum at all bingo that's a big problem yeah well smart people did right i mean you got um there was there was some stuff that uh, in academia yeah oh my god i can't think kinsing uh Kinsey, mm-hmm. you got the Kinsey scale. I mean, that comes from the fifties, right? But right. you're absolutely right. In our larger discourses about sex and gender in the mid nineties, absolutely not. We are very much uh, in our little boxes, and people start throwing around words like feminazi, and you know, start making jokes about. Uh, yeah, well, I agree with the, the motion that you just made, Dustin. But I, I think it's an interesting conversation to, to bring us to with, with Dogma 1999, right? Because we should. We're getting to the point where mass culture should be doing a little bit better. Uh, and there's moments where you're like, you could write it off as, well, the film's kind of making fun uh, of Jay, right? It's making fun of Jay's bluster uh, and his his 
casual misogyny by pointing out that Jay is kind of sexually fluid uh, as a character. And it's a joke that maybe could use more letting it sit, right? Because Jay's mm-hmm. like, whoa, oh, oh, hey, man, come on. Like, it, there, There's something to be gleaned there from the way it's undercutting Jay's uh toxicity machismo. yeah his, his machismo exactly like that's jay's kind of whole defining character attribute throughout all the films he appears in uh he likes weed and he likes women right and i think letting that moment be uh letting it breathe right giving some humanity to jay outside of his grossness is is kind of lovely potentially but you're right it, the, the film that we get doesn't allow you that moment it's a joke it's like aha yeah got you your closet gay haha well and i I think this speaks to your your larger question right of we're talking about a satire when a satire takes pot shots at marginalized peoples it really kind of undercuts the strength of of its humor Uh, right i mean because Mm -hmm. it's punching down exactly if we're making a satire about organized religion and there's no target that you can more aggressively punch up at than organized religion outside of i don't know government uh, those are kind of the big two that you can freely punch up at with impunity. People get mad at you, but it's hard to make the case that you're not uh, attacking somebody with more power than you. But when you also take pot shots at the same marginalized people that organized religion uh, have taken pot shots at, you find yourself on the same side that you're trying to make fun of. Yeah, it's, it's a good question to ask, Dustin. I mean, problematizing the art is kind of a big consideration when you start talking about it. Yeah, again, I just want to sort of like throw that out there because I do feel like you have to open with disclaimers at this point in the discourse. And so I I wondered how we might go about the disclaiming of some, you know, gross stuff uh, from Smith here. But again, this is, I I, I do think that everything you said, I I totally agree with. And I do think we have to go with Sign of the Times. Sure. You know, yeah, I think that's, yeah. It's just, you know, he was woke for what woke looked like in the 90s. You know, yeah, I mean, he could be well, and I think Arthur, as as he knew how to be, I think, is the, the element. That's a very good point, Arthur. And I think that kind of circles us back to stuff about like representation behind the camera. Right. It's yeah. and, well in having been uh, Affleck and Matt Damon on screen in this film kind of takes us to their Project Greenlight. Right. And they got in uh, all that trouble. The most recent season of that, that they tried to do. Right. And ben, Matt Damon said some dumb shit about, well, you know, as long as you got representation in front of the camera. Uh, yeah. And really, he meant what he, poor, dumb idiot that he is. Look, you get famous enough, you end up getting surrounded by people who tell you yes all the time. And I'm yeah. not trying to give anybody a clean pass, but I am trying to have some empathy for people who might not know things they should know. Yeah, uh, right. But that said, I think having a set designer or, a, oh God, who would have dressed the props? Probably. Anyway, having a, a production team who knows it's not okay to have the the black characters without speaking lines in your film that aren't chris rock drinking 40s having somebody on set to to point out to you why that might be gross is a good thing to have yeah you know and i i guess the thing that you know or at the very least a conversation to be had before you agree on that being the move to be had for sure and i think the other side of it is we don't want to give too much of a pass but we also want to sort of again there's an empathy here that we can we can we can understand that the goalposts are moving and they have been moving. Yeah. And it is difficult to adapt that people are, you know, animals of habits. 
And yeah. so we learn a certain way to use pronouns. We learn a certain way to address sexuality, and we learn certain binaries to sort of navigate the world. And as our knowledge shifts, it does take a learning curve, and sometimes some filmmakers are slower than others in doing that. Now, those who are like recalcitrant and like forcibly, you know, stodgily, crotchily saying, get off my lawn. You're saying things about how you can't do comedy anymore, even though they've never yeah. done comedy on a stage ever. Yeah, th yeah, those kinds of things are really troubling. But when you say, okay, you know what? I was doing what I thought was all right, and I realize now I wouldn't make that joke now. I wouldn't, you know, make those choices now. I, and again, I mean, I don't get, I don't have the past to give as a white cisgender man. No, none of us do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But my brain goes, I get that. Well, and I think that's what we're doing, right? For good or for ill, I, I think we're allowing our uh, the, the ability our brains as white cis dudes have to generate empathy for other white cis dudes. We're, yeah. we're given a pass that's maybe not ours to give, but I, I think you're right. If we get bogged down in problematizing, we can't talk about the interesting stuff that is there. Right. And I think this is a good time to pivot to, we talked about colonization, let's talk about the oppression of uh, marginalized peoples through religion, right? Which right. is something that dogma seems to be concerned with, specifically in the character of Rufus. It addresses specific, well, yeah. Well, and it, well, the, and the with slave trade and then the, sort of the way in which the slave trade's not mentioned, yep. uh, the way in which uh, the sort of patriarchal view of God yep. is, is a thing that Selma Hayek tackles, and then uh, again, the Chris role Rock, of women in the Bible. Chris uh, Rock's sort of erasure question of a black character in the Gospels. The, the white the whiting of the Christ, right? That kind of stuff, yeah. And, and and I mean, so I mean, there's a there's a handful of points, and I, the historical point to be made is, of course, Jesus was not white. No, and, and nor was he African. No, he the, was clearly not from there. Yeah, historically. The, the thing that I think gets lost, right, is that I mean, you can look at Eastern depictions of the Christ as you know depicted as being Chinese or Japanese, and. The problem with that is that Western Christianity kind of has the monopoly on the spreading right. of Christianity throughout the last thousand or so years of human history. That's the real issue. It's, yeah. it's, it's not taking the divine and making it look like the people you're talking to. It's taking the divine and making it look like you and telling everybody you talk to that it looks like you. Like, like you to the exclusion of the you I'm speaking to. It Bingo. looks like me to the exclusion of you, brown people, black yeah. people, whatever colored people you happen to be. Yeah. Um, that's where it gets problematic. I'm all for depictions of Jesus um, in any you know sort of racial garb. I mean, I, I'm fine with that. I love a uh, Korean Christ. Yeah. Looks like a Keanu. I'm, I'm a big that, fan of a South American Jesus. I haven't seen I, South American lots Jesus. Lots of South American Jesus yeah. art, and that's, I, I'm a big fan of that. I saw a lot of watercolors recently of, mm -hmm. uh, of Korean and Japanese Christ. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Cool. yeah. And, and I'm all for that. I think this stuff's very important. But that does not sort of move away from the fact, you know, the historical fact of Jesus, fine. So let's set that yeah. aside. But... The, the point that Chris Rock's character exists to, to depict is a thing that is a race, that we do have Simon of Cyrene, who picks up the, Christ of, uh, the cross of Jesus at, uh, on the Via Dolorosa. And so that's in the gospel narratives, and he is the father of the character Rufus, who is named as an apostle. And there are more apostles than the twelve apostles, by the way. Um, in the hist you know, by the way, one of them's a chick. Her name's Junia. She gets referenced in Re Romans chapter sixteen. If you want to look it up, dear listener. Thanks for your deep cut knowledge uh, okay. today, Dustin. But I'm just saying, the, the, there are lots of apostles. Sure. But there's like the twelve, like the the chosen, the ones that chummed with Jesus, who or sort of get kind of a I don't know a, 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 a particular pedestal. Yeah. Everybody um, talks about got Thor. A place at the table. Everybody talks about Thor. Nobody talks about. 
uh, the Wasp or Hawkeye. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. You get your B-tier superheroes. But they're all superheroes, right? They're all sort of the major leaders of the church. Yeah, and sure they are. Wink. You got yeah. the Avengers. Then you got the West Coast Avengers yeah. over here. <laughs> <laughs> those guys. Which, they're still superheroes. But anyway, <laughs> my point is those those characters do exist, but... The fact that it is deep cut knowledge, the fact is that Kevin Smith, I don't know if he just found the name Rufus and thought, what's the blackest sounding name I could use? I think he thought, what's the funniest Bible name? Yeah. What's like the least? A a list of Bible names. What's a Bible name that sounds the most contemporary? Right. Yeah. But then to go and, and again, just chase out the history of that, that that particular character yeah. in Christian art has always been depicted as African. Really? And his father has always been uh, d- depicted as African. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I did yeah. know that. And then also um, there's, a, there's a Simon of Niger that's mentioned in the Book of Acts. Uh, and Nigeria, obviously, you know, um, an African uh, nation or a location, not a nation at that time. Yeah. But anyway. The, the river basin at that yeah, time. His, I think his nickname was like Niger, like you'd call somebody East Texas. Yeah. Uh, so that's the thing. Sure. Within the scriptures. However, the point I think is well taken from Kevin Smith is that overall we do tend to erase that kind of history. Well, and, and serendipity, the Selma Hayek character has that other point about like, yeah, I can only do so much as the uh, the voice of inspiration, right? Men held the pen, right? And they decided it was going to be written yeah. a certain way, and they write it their way. And the history of the canonization of yep. Christian texts in the Council of Nicaea will show you that. Mostly dudes. So, oh, mostly dudes, of course. But there's another interesting point I think we ought to point out. Sure. Uh, so we start thinking about the great post-apostolic uh, era theologians of the church, the great writers of the church. Okay, right? now break this down for everybody whose uh, theolog- theological knowledge is the movie Dogma. Okay. <laughs> I, I barely know what you're talking about. Uh, okay, so there's the cats that hang out with Jesus, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, The contemporaries. Right, those guys, St. Paul. Uh, who was after Jesus but wrote most of the New yeah. Testament, those kinds of characters. That's the apostolic era. And then there are many writings that follow after that, and we've got a great, you know, long theological tradition over the last 2,000 years. People didn't stop writing after the Bible got written. Yeah, right? you got to remember there's 300 years of fanfic uh, between the Bible getting printed, or codified, rather, uh, and and the the depicted death of Jesus of Nazareth. There's 300 years of fanfic that gets written in yeah, Greek. So that's the, yeah, and, and again, uh, there's people writing all kinds of stuff, like, Basil of Caesarea, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, uh, Athanasius. You got uh, those origin. cool pillars in China from like 500 AD. Yeah, there's stuff everywhere. So one of the biggest voices in that entire conversation is a guy called Saint Augustine. Okay, right? know we know that. you know Augustine. He's African. I mean, that's and the thing. this is what year 300? Yeah, right around canceling. Well, like, and, and he is like the big daddy that everybody sort of bows down to. But we all think of Augustine or Augustine, however you pronounce it, uh, depending on where you're from, I suppose. We we don't think of that bit of history coming from Africa. That the the greatest theological mind that the church p- produced after the apostolic era was an African mind. And that's not part of the conversation. And so to that extent, Kevin Smith's absolutely right. Like that's an absolute point of erasure that there are major contributors to these conversations that are coming from the African continent, coming from places other than uh, Southern Europe, and again, I mean, even Greece for that matter. When we start talking about the Cappadocian fathers and Basils and um, those cats, um, all of those cats are important. And what they're saying matters, and they're part of the larger discourse, and they form the sort of shape of the church. But the biggest voice that formed the shape of the church was an African guy. And 
we don't that's not what we say that's just not the way we treat him and well, we don't oftentimes depict augustine as african either well and there's obviously a, a great deal of importance that you know could be placed on mother mary or uh, mary magdalene that uh, is not part of the, the common discourse of theological thought right i mean it's there yeah. uh, and you know if you meet people who are well read enough they'll talk to you a little bit more about uh, apocryphal stuff or uh, stuff that's kind of forgotten uh, depictions or uh, artistic depictions like uh Jesus Christ Superstars that build out or that that movie with uh Joaquin Phoenix and uh Rudy Mara about Mary Magdalene that came out this last year so I didn't see it yeah I haven't seen it either but my point is both within fiction and within agreed upon biblical texts there's still stuff that gets kind of glossed over right. as, as to the role of women in the church and, and they, they pretend like it's not there and yeah. so I mean well because it doesn't and this this is getting circling back to the point of satire right it didn't necessarily it, it didn't uh help the spread of Christianity as determined by uh, white dudes uh throughout the middle ages right so that shit gets jettisoned to make the narrative cleaner for their purposes at the time and this is what I guess what the church and what Christians tend to do to few satires so they'll say ah oh, rufus is black apostle or whatever and we will push up our glasses and we'll say oh in the expanded universe or whatever about that without saying but the reason why the observations being made in the first place the reason why the joke works is because nobody knows there's a guy called rufus in the bible yeah. The reason why they make these jokes about it being exclusionary and all white is because we don't talk about Augustine. The reason why we talk about it being so patriarchal is because we don't discuss the roles of Mary Magdalene or Mary and Martha or the four prophetess daughters of Philip or Junia the Apostle or a number of other important Christian leaders that are women. We don't, yeah. we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't acknowledge that. And because it is sort of that sort of background history and we keep those characters marginalized and in the background, that's why it happens, which goes back to the Alanis Morissette depiction of God. The fact is, biblically speaking, God is without gender. Yeah, the the, the Greeks... Biblically speaking. Uh, when, when it got translated in English, they kind of opted to jettison a lot of uh, deliberately feminized language. No, they use metaphors. They use the metaphor of father, and they use the metaphor of father more often than they do any other metaphor I wonder uh, why. for God. Because white dudes hold... Or dudes... I was being sarcastic. I knew that was yeah, exactly yeah. why. Holding yeah. the pen. <laughs> But also, the Psalms talk about God as the hen who gathers her daughters under her wings. Yeah, what's the, the, the Hebrew name for God that basically means uh, the big titty mother who never goes dry? Or uh, some... El Shaddai. El Shaddai, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's a kind of a, a graphic way to uh, to translate it, but yeah. But those metaphors are there, yeah. but they again, they get sidelined in, in favor of the—and yeah. so, the, the, the but this is, I think, where the conversation sort of like self-neutralizes. Sure. Is that— Everybody who is sort of anti or in a place where they want to be very, very critical of the church, they say, yeah, get them, sick them, you know, whatever. And then all of the theology nerds and pastors and clergymen or whatever are going, well, actually, that's not quite valid. But the thing is, the reason why it's being made in the first place is because your valid secondary point is never mentioned unless somebody contests you. Yeah. It's never foregrounded. Yeah. And that's where we suck. Well, that's where we get the character of Cardinal Glick, played by uh, uh, the, George the, late, Carlin. the late great George Carlin, right? Yeah, this this figure in the church that is less concerned with spiritual truth and you know the seeking nature of humanity and all, all of these questions. Marketability. Bingo, right? And yeah. that is the issue that I think has always hampered, and I think seems to be one of Kevin Smith's primary concerns in the film Dogma, is when... 
uh, human interaction with the divine becomes less about caring for one another and offering each other uh, hard truths in times of need. It becomes about marketability. And how do you package something in a way that allows it to spread quickly and easily? And I think it is no surprise that you can look at the formation of, and let's, I'm not going to make it as specific to say as the Catholic Church, but you can use uh, the Bible and Christian texts and the organizing of churches throughout history to organize a pretty successful cult. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would point you to your David Koresh's, your Jim Jones's, et al. Uh, if you take all of the nuance and context out of the text, it just becomes how to make lots of people like you. It becomes how to win friends and influence people. Uh, And I think Cardinal Glick represents that, right? This idea of how do we make Christ less about human suffering and more about buddy. Uh, And there's something interesting, right? Because it does seem to come from a place of, uh, well, for Cardinal Glick, who's written as a character, Barely, but it seems to represent this idea of just money. Right. There is something to that, though, right? How do you get people interested in something that is all about the things that we don't like to think about? Our uh, our immateriality, our smallness in an infinite universe, all of this big shit that if you think about for too long kind of sends you into a panic and keeps you from sleeping at night. The questions that faith are supposed to uh, address become less important than butts and pews. Right. And that's the three B's, right? Butts, budgets, and baptisms. Yeah. Yeah. Well, And I I think Cardinal Glick kind of gets us to talk about uh, a question that comes up a couple of times throughout Dogma, right, is uh, what makes a good person? You have the movie's executive who is free of sin and and is spared by Loki when he executes all these these people at this Disney slash McDonald's combo, which is a very, very fun, very fun imagery. Uh, But there's a couple foreshadowing buddy. Right. Uh, But there's this question of what makes a human being decent. Is it fear? Because that is uh, Bartleby's proposition. I think at one point, Mm -hmm. Uh, I actually don't know who makes that point. I just wrote down fear question mark in my notes, Uh, but somebody brings it up. So we're going to talk about it. Uh, Is that a good reason to behave because you're scared something bad will happen to you? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what is it that propels Jay and Silent Bob to behave? It is certainly not a fear of divine retribution. It just seems to be doing the right thing because they happen to be there, even if they're a couple of chuckleheads. Mm -hmm. Right. What is it that motivates Bethany to continue this quest? It is not fear. It it is knowing that somebody's got to do something. Yeah. It's a humanitarian impulse. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that is... Dogma's fundamental answer to what makes human decency. It's not fear. It's not fear of the divine or fear of mortality. It is humanism. It is mm-hmm. trying to b- lighten the load for everyone around you as best you can. Yeah. That well, seems to be the consideration of the film anyway. I think so. Yeah. I think so. Now, um, I can talk theology all day long sure. on this. Do we have other questions uh, of a more theoretical or formal or industrial nature of this film before we run right into more of this garbage that I mean I could nerd out for for weeks? I, we could pivot to the industrial stuff and okay, close let's out do, there. Let's do that. Yeah. So was, to Arthur's point, this film uh, is owned by the Weinstein Company, right, Arthur? Yeah, I believe they've got the rights to it. Uh, the brothers do. Uh, Them as I entities, the, not as the a corporate brothers entity. have it. Yeah. Fuck. Wild, so, yeah, uh, yeah, and so until uh, I don't know if those rights will revert or if they just die, whichever happens first, I guess. Uh, you know, this this movie's out of out of print, out of stream. You can't find it to rent. You can't find it to watch for free on the Netflix, it, and it could be on YouTube. I mean, there's always a yeah, there's always or like, on Vimeo. You know, yeah, the stolen version. Yeah, when right, rights to movies get weird, they but start yeah. showing up wherever. Yeah, but to your point, you know, it's I, I had this DVD. I bought it at Vintage Stock a few years ago on used and. I was looking, you know, I was looking to see if it was streaming the other day, and I couldn't find it. I was like, "That's weird." 
And then I went and found it. You know, it's pretty high price tag for it to try to find it because it's just not easy to come by. And uh, it's a movie. It was, you know, part of that deal. I mean, he worked a lot with Miramax and with, uh, what's the Spielberg's? Uh, oh, uh, um, DreamWorks. Yeah, I think, not no, Dimension. I'm thinking of Dimension. Oh, Dimension. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I think he's working some with Dimension and, and yeah. you know, those those rights. Lynn Shea's the, company, yeah. yeah. Well, I think that it's a very interesting thing that happens right because chasing amy uh he he intentionally kind of messed up the home release of because he knew he would get a criterion release yeah i can't remember the whole story uh but basically he made a choice uh to have it be released on laserdisc when laserdisc was already kind of being agreed upon is on the way out uh and somehow he got to be in the decision making room enough to secure uh criterion releasing the film nice which i think is very funny but also leads to the point of distribution's weird, right? We have an entire 30 years of movie history that's gone. From like 1890 to 1920, I think there's mm-hmm. some like 90% of films are just... They're just gone. They're gone. We will get there again, ladies and gentlemen. It uh, And friends beyond the binary, it is not a question of if but when. All it takes is for a couple of uh, secure servers to go, and that's it, man. Everything's backed up these days. I'm sure there are physical prints of some things but some of those are probably in pretty shit poor shape mm-hmm. and i think the further we get into this era of digital uh and the era of comeuppance for people who have done bad things there's a whole lot of names that are not going to have money to release the things that they have rights to and things are just going to disappear uh and you know i'm not clutching my pearls and saying gather ye physical medias now but i i think it's interesting right i mean with dogma sits at the start of a new uh, it's 1999, right? It is right there at the birth of DVD uh, and kind of this comeback for physical media that only lasts about 15 years. It's weird. It's a weird time, uh, both now in 2019, talking about how do you watch things outside of the theatrical experience with streaming, but also how do we preserve things from the last 20 years, the rights of which are getting weirder and more nebulous by the day with corporate mergers uh, aplenty. I think there's also something interesting going on industrially, and I've not done any research and figured out the sort of yeah, we're history sort of here. Right but but what I do notice is that there are um, because of Kevin Smith's own notoriety, there's a lot of celebrities. There's a, yeah. there's a lot of sort of I wouldn't say stunt casting, but definitely. Well, I mean, Lance I would Morissette say... might be kind of a stunt cast. Sure. George Carlin might be a little bit of a stunt cast, but Lance Morissette and George Carlin are never on the set at the same time. Yeah. Right, and that there's, uh, it does seem to be a real economical way in which Matt Damon and uh, Ben Affleck scenes are shot, and there does seem to be, you know, even Selma Hayek and uh, Alan Rickman's uh, appearances in the film that they're being used and they're being used well, but it definitely is a film that you can look at and say, oh, we only had enough money to pay them for these days. Oh, when the leads walk to the gates of the church at the end to see the aftermath of Bartleby and Loki's rampage, ooh, you can feel the the budget stretch right yeah. there. Mm-hmm. You, you can feel them walking into a, a set being... They're like the the moments where it goes from set to actual like closed street seem very clear. Yeah, or even on the bridge when Rock shows up, you can see the green screen in yeah. the back. Oh yeah, you can tell. Yeah, there there are moments where the the film is buckling under its weight. But again, you know, you got a big ass poop puppet in this movie. That's not cheap. Yeah, no, I'm just fun. And that puppet cast. That, that's I mean, a two hundred. Isn't cheap. Oh man, that no way. Yeah, and Affleck and Damon in ninety nine. I'm curious about you made the point about you know Kevin Smith being a good old hometown boy. What m- clearer example of 
hometown boys made good in Hollywood is there than uh, old Benny Boy and Matt. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I don't. Yeah, again, they've worked together so many times. And he, I mean, he's got the connection with Ben from Chasing Amy. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. With Mallrats. Mallrats is one of Ben Affleck's like earliest screen performances. He's the he's the guy that uh, is famous for having butt sex with all the girls that work at the mall. Oh. That's his character. That's yeah. his thing. He's just a gross guy. And I, yeah. I don't know. I think Ben and Kevin Smith have some like before they were famous connection of some kind, despite being mm-hmm. you know Boston and Jersey. But you know, I don't. I don't know if that friendship helps with the cost. But at a certain point, agents and studios get involved. Pan scale or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, who knows how that shit works out? But you're absolutely right. There's a whole lot of people with a, even a 99 that are expensive names. And if you've got um, eyes to see or ears to hear, to use the biblical phrase, uh, you can see those sort of independent filmmaking stylistic constraints. Right? Yeah. Yep. Sort of inflecting themselves within what's a much more big budget sort of studio yep. picture. And so I just wanted to point it out. Yeah, yeah. Again, I think that's a big part of what makes it an interesting kind of fulcrum in his career, right, is the moment where he, he is losing all the indie and is being swallowed up by the machine. And it's the moment in his filmography where he feels most, uh, seems to most have his sea legs mm-hmm. for that balance. Um, well, good stuff. Well, let's render a verdict, shall we? Dogma, shelf or trash, go Dalton. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go to bat on shelving this one. I, I think this has been a really great conversation i think we've barely scratched the surface of this film honestly i think there's a whole lot more to reveal itself uh different perspectives different considerations abound with this movie uh again we're, we're three guys of, of various christian backgrounds uh upbringings and current uh opinions and uh, walks so we we have one perspective on this film I, I think anybody with a spiritual concern that doesn't come from the Christian tradition will probably have like a really. I would love to talk to somebody who has like a very uh, strong like spiritual uh, uh, relationship internally that has no experience with the Christian tradition. I would love to get somebody's take on this uh, that that has that experience. But again, for all these reasons, and you know, as I've mentioned, I, I think being kind of the peak of Kevin Smith's career, I think it's very shelfable in terms of just talking about the '90s. Right, 1999 is a big year. We've been uh, not just us, basically every film podcast has been uh, talking about 2019 being kind of a, a big looking back moment on the year that was 99. Uh, and I think Dogma is not a film that's going to come up a lot in those conversations, but I, I think it does. It should. It, it should, exactly, because I think it's a great way to look at closing the decade of the 90s, right? It is a great look at what happened with the indie boom of the early 90s and where does it go after the end of the 90s. I think Dogma kind of says some interesting places. I, I think if you cobble together every, whatever is... I'm not going to try to do the math that off the top of my head. I was trying to think what Soderbergh uh, and Tarantino had most close to, uh, to Dogma. I think Jackie Brown and the early development on Kill Bills probably mm-hmm. for Tarantino. I think, what, Out of Sight for Soderbergh? In the out of Sight's 98, I think. So and there you go. Okay. Ocean's 11 is 2001. They, well, there you go, right? right? There, then, yeah. Out of Sight being his soft transition into a big-ass Hollywood movie with 01. And then again, you got old sweet Matty Ball game. Yeah. Uh, Blowing up. I, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are also two interesting figures in the, the course of Hollywood in the yeah. 90s. So yeah, yeah. I, I say you shelf it. I think mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of like historical interest here. Also, yeah, it's a funny movie with a big poop monster. How many of those you got? Not, not many. many. Not exactly. enough. Not not nearly enough. Give me more shit demons. All right. Well, what do you say, Arthur? Shelf or trash? Uh, shelf. I, I, it already I, is, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. But I mean, don't spend hundred dollars on it, yeah. baby. Yeah, don't please. Um, unless it's like a nice box set with like twenty movies or something. Um, yeah, I, I think Dogma just uh, to Dalton's point, but also I think uh, uh, mainstream Hollywood religious satire just doesn't really 
exist. You know, we get a few indies here and there, but something this big budgeted uh, just doesn't occur. So I think that in alone is very interesting to study. And then all the points that Dalton made, I mean, there's a lot here to mine uh, from it. There's a lot here to talk about 99 and just 90s mm-hmm. culture and how we were approaching different topics at the time. And so, and it is one of the, you know, it's kind of peak Kevin Smith. I don't, it's probably a top five, top three of his films, but um, I think it's one that's kind of left out to the, to the wayside. I think most people focus on those first three or some of his other stuff, but you know, dogma is a very interesting point. It's probably one of his, probably maybe his most personal film. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would definitely go ahead and shelf it. You got me a theological satire, guys. I'm yeah. in. Yeah, no. I'm, well, well, you want to play with the game? Yes. Let's let's play with the game and let's have fun. Yeah, it's on my shelf for sure. Uh, I think it's a lot of fun and definitely worth your time. So there you go, dear listener. We um we like dogma. What are you gonna do? Hit us with a fish? Yeah, yeah. we like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of you know, course we do. Go go check it out. I there's something there. Say social media things. So yeah, if you liked this, I can't imagine why, but if you did. That's cool. You should, uh, I don't know, engage with us or something. Uh, don't get engaged to us. We're all married men and are far too tired to entertain any dalliances. Uh, but if you like what we talk about, then you can find us on the internet. We're at good underscore trash on Twitter. Um, we're not on there a whole lot. We're trying to stay away from social media. I deleted Twitter from my phone. Whoa. I know. Wow. I know. This is the first time I'm talking about it publicly. Left the shackles behind. Yeah, well, my phone vacation taught me one thing, and it was that I stress out a lot less when I'm not staring into the abyss of the internet at all hours of the night. Uh, but we're still on Twitter at good underscore trash if you want just a quick uh, back and forth with us. Our DMs are open. Uh, we also try to you know tweet out interesting movie news and uh, local stuff. If uh, you know your uh, Oklahoma City metro uh, local, we try to let you know when shit that's kind of hard to see in this area opens up. So that's at good underscore trash. Uh, you can always rate, review, or subscribe to the show at Stitcher Radio or Apple Podcasts, however you put this in your ears. Those are probably the two best ones. Uh, this and more things are over on the web at goodtrashmedia.com. That's goodtrashmedia.com. Arthur, through the sheer force of will uh, and patience, has cobbled together a WordPress website and actually made it, uh, I don't know, pretty livable. Uh, through power and wisdom and strength. Just strength, mostly yeah. strength. It's strength of will and character, mostly. Yeah, character. Uh, has right. Arthur cobbled together goodtrashmedia.com. So this show and everything that we have ever helped put out onto the internet exists over there. Uh, finally, if you uh, want to help us keep the lights on, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM for lots of goofy extra shit. Mostly it's just us talking about uh, what we do and we're not watching movies for this show. Uh, sometimes we'll have, uh, what's your five favorite Marvel movies? I don't know, all kinds of goofy stuff like yeah. that. Just whatever we feel like talking about. Um, so that's how you can help us keep the lights on, help keep these uh, streaming subservices, these streaming subscriptions we use for most weeks. Uh, all that good shit. Patreon.com forward slash GTM. Did I do it? Did I get everything? You did everything. All right. Arthur, uh, what are we doing next week, man? Uh, well, Baker, it's not going to be hard to watch at home, is it? Uh, it could be. Oh, do you have to go out to the picture show for this one? Yeah, we're going to do something we don't do often. We're going to go to the picture well, show. Well, that's impossible oh. to watch at home. Yeah. <laughs> yes, unless you have like binoculars and a really close location to the theater. Sometimes it turns out you have to go sit in a room with people you don't know to experience cinema. Gross. And it could be great because we are going to go talk about, and well, we're going to go watch first, and then we will talk about uh, one of the most critically lauded films of 2019. Mm. Uh, we're going to be watching the Palm Dior winning Bong Joon-ho helmed Parasite. I'm so excited. I'm very pumped. Uh, our uh, dearly beloved Keith and Smith uh, actually texted me today uh, when he got out and uh, told me to believe the hype. 
So I'm quite excited about this Dude. one. Uh, yeah, it's not often. Th- this is kind of a. Gonna, is this going to be a soft launch into December, Arthur? Can we talk about that? Uh, not well. I mean, kind of. I don't know. We've, we'll have to talk about it off air because we've got like a couple weeks. We've got a couple weeks. Calendar. All right. Well, let you know. Could we be. Might, couldn't be. We'll see what happens. This might not be the last time we talk about a 2019 release on yeah. the show uh, before the year's over. I guess is what Correct. I was saying. That's so, a fair assumption. Get out to the theater. Go see Bong Joon Ho's Parasite. Uh, or you know, if you're not going to have a chance to do that, I guess listen to other people talk about it before you listen to us talk about it because those will probably be better they'll be smarter yeah but you keep watching and we'll keep talking anyway and we'll see you all next time kisses